is related to the upcoming presidential elections in France, uh, where he's taking in the polls. I'm not completely cynical, but he's <coughs> one of my favorite people. So anyway, uh, uh, I, I do want to point out that everybody who's involved here is not doing the same thing. Uh, I just want to say a couple of quick things about Turkey. Turkey has managed to keep its channels of communication <coughs> open, both with Qaddafi and a lot of the people involved in the movement against him. And uh, this morning it was announced that uh, Turkey is going to take over control of Benghazi airport, uh, which is then going to be used to get uh, relief supplies into Libya. Um, and of course the Turks have offered to mediate uh, as a way of resolving this. And it's very possible that we might end up in some kind of a mediated resolution to this, uh, especially if uh, weapons and training is not provided uh, to the revolutionaries, because Qaddafi apparently has enough staying power to hang on. Uh, and whether we are going to see a regime change or not, as you know, there's another conference going on in London this morning, actually as we speak, where 40 different countries have come together to decide what to do about Libya. And of the few speeches I heard, uh, it was very clear that even though nobody's using the term, everybody is really talking about regime change. Everybody wants Qaddafi gone. Uh, but uh, whether, whether they are able to do this or not is a different issue. I, want, I do want to point out that the same UN resolution which establishes the no-fly zone plus also expressly prohibits foreign troops from being uh, sent to Libya. So if you are going to stay within the UN mm -hmm. framework, uh, that is uh, not an option. Um, how many, am I out? Pretty much. Pretty much? Let me say two, two words about Libya. Uh, sorry, Syria quickly. Syria uh, is another very interesting phenomena here. Um, I think that a uh, uh, couple of things. Number one, I think that from the Assad uh, government's point of view, uh, the situation is still salvageable for a variety of reasons. Right? First of all, uh, contrary to many of these other places, uh, Assad does have considerable support within Syria. First of all, he's only been around 11 years, right, as compared to everybody else who's been around for 40 years, 50 years, and so on. Uh, he's, uh, uh, and, and this is evident in two things. Number one, that the protests which have been going on for a while now are still not calling for regime change. If you notice what the demands are, nobody's calling for regime change. They want reforms made, but they're not talk talking about regime change. And the government seems to be uh, willing to go further, quicker than the other governments did. So as you know, the, uh, the government which had been in power since 2003, the prime minister that is, uh, that government was uh, dismissed today. Uh, there, there are sounds coming out of Damascus which indicate uh, that uh, there's a series of reforms which uh, Assad is going to announce in, in a speech to the nation today. Um, apparently, these changes are actually being debated by the Syrian parliament right now, and they have been asking for clarifications of what exactly the president wants to pass. But nevertheless, right, that's the way the system works. Among the things which, is, which are being talked about is a lifting of the state of emergency, which in the Syrian case has been in place since 1963. Right? <laughs> um, the uh, greater freedom for the media and allowing other political parties uh, to come into being and also uh, a big program of moving against uh, corruption. Uh, so, and, and if he's able to do that, uh, he, might, he might actually survive, but we don't know. Uh, everybody else seems to have gone by the same playbook, not this one, the other one, the ones the Tunisians and the Egyptians tried. Uh, and that doesn't work out. So we'll see, number one, if Assad does try something different and if that is going to make a difference. Thank you.
little bit more uh, aggressive stand about what's happening and not really uh, uh, leave you with the impression that things are going well. I think things are actually gone uh, terribly wrong with, with what's happening in the middle. So much for an, a revolution, I think it's an evolution of dictatorships and military regimes and police states. If there is a revolution that you'll see in the next couple of years, there'll probably be a revolution in, in um, surveillance techniques in dealing with such problems in the future. Uh, let me quickly explain why. We see that in Manama and the various Shia neighborhoods, that much like what happened in Kuwait after the first Gulf War, you're going to see new neighborhoods emerging. You're going to see old neighborhoods demolished. That one hospital, the um, uh, children's hospital, who taking care of many of these people who are dying with convulsions from the tear gas was provided by the Americans, has been bulldozed down. Pearl Square has been bulldozed down, the kind of symbol of the resistance. You're going to have very much like in the 1860s and 70s in France, where you'll have Paris was when Paris was recreated to actually facilitate the surveillance and indeed the projection of state power, you're going to see similar things happening in, in Egypt and in Tunisia. You already have contractors all over Egypt who have, by the way, are being paid because the contract has already been signed, advising how to deal with such problems. You know, of course, the United States has had now a long history dealing with this kind of stuff in Baghdad, in Basra. And of course, in Kabul, uh, where my sources, journalists who are actually sympathetic to what I have to say, what I write about, but who don't dare to say, uh, write what, they, what I say because they, they will not get their, uh, their pieces picked up by the big, big newspapers, actually confirm, because they have insiders in this industry <coughs> called the security industry, the military industrial complex, which just expands in all kinds of directions, that surveillance cameras, again, knocking down certain neighborhoods like uh, the regime did in the early 90s, which caused a big policy in Cairo, where they moved, forcefully moved lots of people out into the suburbs to easily control the kind of uh, housing units, the area right outside the Darawakai. Many people know where that is. It's kind of, it sits right there on the Nile. It's cleaned out this whole poor neighborhood. You're going to see similar things happening in Cairo. Strangely, nobody talks about the fact that all these young, brave kids, you know, this kind of new generation of potential leaders, they're all in military prisons. They've been arrested. The Facebook phenomenon, well, you know what? That's, that's kind of a gift to the surveillance industry. It's, it's a gift to the secret police. They know who all these guys are talking to. We know that Sudan actually puts out fake um, calls for protest. The seat actually shows up in, in Block A in Khartoum to go arrest them all. You, you go to Cairo today, you see the parents, these poor parents with their 18-year-old, 20-year-old kid with the picture outside the military court saying, Take, bring my child back. Because in five minutes after being picked up on the street, they've been thrown in, um, in military prison <coughs> for five to 10 years in front of a military uh, uh, judge who gives them five minutes. No, no jury, no, no lawyer. Tunisia, people haven't been paid since the regime fell. People are getting frustrated. Tomato prices have gone up about 50, 60%. Bread prices have gone up 50, 50, 60%. Has really changed things? <coughs> what happened when they amassed the protest, the kind of cont continuity, the same faces and new, new clothing. They got beat up. What happened in Tahrir Square in Egypt? It's, they don't exist anymore. People don't, they don't, they're not camping out anymore. They've been cleared out by a bunch of thugs. The military regime is still there. The same generals with the same little gifts that they were given by Mubarak, they're still there. 
The military has co-opted the revolution. They position themselves on TV every night. How every half an hour you have this kind of image of a little kid with an Egyptian flag with then 10 tanks and, and special ops guys training in swimming pools. So I would suggest the revolution is the evolution of these dictatorships. Yes, figureheads will be removed in some cases, but the apparatus still exists. They're developing more sophisticated ways. They've learned from this kind of sudden <coughs> moment of surprise. The kids and the older <coughs> people actually had enough, and they actually, for, for a moment, because of those that brave uh, town there in Tunisia, stood up to the police officers, fought back. Someone caught it on, on camera, and they got on the, in, on the internet, and some of the people said, you know what? They're not going to fight back. They're not going to shoot back at us. In places like Tunisia, in Egypt, they know better. Because the soldiers are, all, are, are the only people. They're the Egyptians. Now Libya, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, these are all mercenaries. They'll bring in Pakistanis and Yemenis and, and Syrians and Palestinians all the time and shoot at those people. They don't care. They'll shoot at women like they did in Manama. So what you're beginning to see is we're going to have probably a, a new dynamic. Maybe there will be reform in the secret police in Egypt. They didn't perform that well. So the reform will probably be a reaction to, well, they failed to actually anticipate this. They've reacted since then. Again, the contractors are there. They're now figuring out ways how to make sure that you don't have 300,000 people showing up on Fridays in Tahrir Square anymore. What does that bode in terms of long-term hope for democracy? I don't think they have any fear that we're going to have these problems anymore. So that's my concern about Egypt, is that we've kind of missed the boat on this. Kids are in jail. They're being tortured. The military has not been reformed. The police will not show up in the streets. Well, I just people on the streets, don't, they do not trust the police. There's no credibility anymore. And they're complaining. They want to go on strike because they, they, they feel nobody respects them anymore. Well, no shit, because, excuse my language, but you know they've been beating up people all this time. Driving their trucks into crowds. I mean, these images are even uh, paraded in Egyptian official TV, which is very interesting. So you have the military, again, positioning themselves. We are the military of the people. Trust us. We'll handle things. They're handling things very well with their military tribunals. <coughs> Why nobody reports on it? You have to ask yourself. I would suggest you need to be a little bit more cynical. Now, I'm, I uh, have written on uh, Yemen. I've provided you with uh, printout, obviously not enough, so you can kindly share with your neighbors. I can, I can see from my page four to page five, I actually uh, was pretty pretty accurate in predicting what was happening, what was going to happen. Indeed, the, the, the fact, the characters involved are in fact the same ones. So if you look at the last uh, paragraph on, on page four, you can see I, I evoked the name of um, Major General Ali Mufsi, who it, even back then, back in the, in the mid-2000s, he was rumored to be the main kind of rival to Abdul Salah, who's the kind of long-standing dictator of, of first North Yemen and then unified Yemen after 1990. But I warned people that, okay, you can, you can watch this kind of thing. And Salah is also rumored to have cancer. He's been always going to Germany in the last couple of years. And you know, it's very hush-hush about what's, what's up behind that. But I warned then on page, at the, at the last part of that sentence, of, of that paragraph in, on page five, that I would suggest that stability may in fact be uh, something that uh, we maybe uh, put too much stake into. We invest too much in the idea of stability. 
that regimes um, um, over history have sometimes thrived on the, the, the sense that there is indeed instability, there's something that's not yet predictable. People are not, not like unpredictability. People, especially uh, uh, regimes that are protected by outside powers, have sold themselves as the kind of the last resort. You know, if, if we fall, and indeed this is how Salah has been selling the regime for, for years now. If I fall, the collapse of, of the Salah regime will result in chaos to the extent where you don't know what will happen. We could have another Iran. We could have uh, other terrible examples in the past where the, the interest of the Saudi regime, of the Americans, of the Europeans, uh, would be um, uh, directly answered. So what is happening in Yemen um, since at least what, January 12th, I think it was, when we first began to see uh, this, these uh, mass protests out in the streets of Ta'iz and Sana'a, was an attempt to circumvent this movement. The first move was Salah to say, uh, these people are illegitimate. Uh, he's, re he's returned to this um, kind of line of argument in the last couple of days as well. But in between, he's realized that there was actually a force a kind of a tidal wave uh, building behind this kind of initial expression of frustration, which is, by the way, not new. Yemen has been in, in two different regional wars since at least 2000. A civil war in 94, which really was not in any ways resolved, and it just kind of reemerged in 2007. That's the north between the south. And then the whole Saada region, if you look on your map, it's the area that borders Saudi Arabia, which is a problem that has really been a byproduct of policies by the Saudi Arabia, by the United States, and kind of dragging the regime in Yemen along to fortify, police, and indeed uh, criminalize the commercial and cultural activity of the people who live on both sides of the border since 2000. And the reaction was what people with guns and who are still brave and have the guts to stand up to thugs is fight back. Now, as a result of all this oppression that has taken use of American drones, use of American uh, special op officers, of course, well-trained now special op officers in the Yemeni army, who were snipers who killed 52 people two Fridays ago, if you remember. They, they shot very well. We don't, we don't talk about who they were shot, but they shot leaders. They didn't go just shoot randomly. They targeted people who were leaders amongst the, uh, the tens of thousands on the street. Nobody talks about that. Uh, the general who was responsible for suppressing the people up in Sada, up in the Northwest, is the same Ali Muhsin who's now supposedly changed sides and is wish, wi willing to protect the protesters on the street. Now, what's so funny about all this is that the most of the people who are on the streets are internally displaced people from these war zones. They know exactly who is responsible for the ethnic cleansing that took place in the, in the North. This is the exact, the exact same general now who sits there and parades himself in front of select uh, sources and uh, news sources that he's actually taking the other side. What we have here is exactly what the, the Egyptian military is doing. It's the good cop, bad cop kind of phenomenon. Okay? The Yemeni military is composed of Yemenis. Often many of them who come from regions who and their loyalties <laughs> remain with those regions. We don't want to have some kind of patriarch of that community saying, you know what, I, I refuse to allow you out of political expediency, because we know there's some kind of disturbances in the country, to, to fire on the people. You can't have that. So what you basically do is you dilute the ability of the military to intervene one way or the other, certain unreliable elements at least. 
you're also kind of surrounding <coughs> the real authentic opposition who are now in amassing at hundreds of thousands in Sana, in Ta'ayif, in Hudaydah. But believe me, the people who are on the streets, they don't trust each other Muslims one bit. And it's very curious how we get these guys paraded all the time in Western media. Al Jazeera doesn't fall for it. No, no wonder Al Jazeera has been thrown out of Yemen. Al Jazeera is the only one who provided I images of the people who are dying in the hospitals in Bahrain and in Sana'a dying from the tear gas provided by the United States. Briefly about Libya, because I have to. Because it reminds me so much of the early 90s in Eastern Europe, which I, so I personally wasn't involved in. It's an excruciating time for me to just watch what's happening in Libya. Because much like with the period immediately after the disintegration of Eastern Europe, where I recall very well Bush Sr. and James Banker publicly saying, we don't like what's happening, and we would prefer that the Soviet Union remain intact. That we don't like what, what's happening on the other side of the rainbow if things actually proceed the way they are, right? Controlling the Soviet's military and all its assets, I mean, all, and then allowing all these unquestionable types to emerge as potential political leaders. There was some nasty fighting going on. In Tajikistan, in Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and then in the former Eastern Europe, in Yugoslavia, where the same powers that sat now for one month on their hands and watched as Gaddafi replaced his, his, his chief thugs from Chad and Niger with the real professional killers from Ukraine, from Serbia, from Belarus, who were flown in on uh, cargo planes over EU space for one month. So now man those tanks and those, those, those mortars who just kind of swept across the northern parts of Libya in the last couple of weeks. When things were settled, what's the biggest worry now for, for Europe? What was the biggest worry for Europe during Bosnia, the siege of Sarajevo, and then Kosovo two, a couple of years later? Millions of refugees. I predict for you that Benghazi will be the Gaza Strip. It will be a place for Qaddafi's problematic people just go and find safe haven. It will be South Sudan. It will be Gaza. It will be uh, Republika Srpska and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Neighborhoods in Baghdad were divided up along Shia-Sunni lines, right, with walls divided up. This is the kind of rationale that we have dealing with international problems now. I don't see Qaddafi going anywhere, sorry to say. I wish he would have gone in 1969. A buffoon who kind of made made a laughing stock of all the pan-Africanist movements and the legitimate revolutionaries of Africa who were trying to fight corporate power for all those years, and here's this guy purposely making it all sound like a like a circus, make it look like a circus. Think about that. For 30 years, he was standing next to real revolutionaries who were fighting for African, you know, independence from the corporate. Uh, vampires who are sucking the life out of Africa, and he was doing this silly nonsense with his little books and his, his dress and all these things. Qaddafi's a front. And what's happening to the poor Libyan kids, by the way, it is not only a Libyan thing. The, the, the Libyans actually, the guys in the east at least, have embraced the Egyptian brothers who have come in to help them fight. And there are actually three Egyptians who went across the border. No military training, of course, no weapons. If they want the Qaddafi gone, the Americans could have one, they could have shot him in the head the first day. They could have provided these brave kids with some real weapons. 
anti-tank weapons, how about that? No, but he allowed the tanks, just like in Yugoslavia, to go and roll over the opposition. He couldn't er eradicate all his problems. There was still some resistance in Yugoslavia, so they, they, they adapted. In Libya, there's no chance of having a real, real uh, kind of counter-revolution, if you will. A reverse of what's happened. You're gonna have now a border that separates East Libya with the rest of Libya. I must also say kudos to Qatar, not only for Al Jazeera, but you know, they're the only ones who agreed to serve as the middlemen for the East um, um, uh, oil. There were a lot of cargo ships that were full of oil, and Qatar agreed to buy them and give them the cash that they needed to buy the medicines, buy whatever weapons they could find. No other country offered those services. In the meantime, Gaddafi is able, with open accounts in Italy, they continue to sell 500,000 barrels a day using that cash to buy through these, um, um, these companies to provide the mercenaries to fly in every day. It's shameful, shameful. These are, I mean, think about it. Kids who get up and stand up for something. I know it's revolutionary in this country because you, you guys don't do anything. <laughs> but look at the kids in, in, in England who will soon also take, have to take more radical, I think, uh, approach to these things. Why people stand up in the Middle East in these horrible situations is because for a moment they thought that they um, that they understood that there was actually something to, to fight for and die for. Now when they've been stabbed in the back, you're gonna have another generation to say, you know, I'm so cynical, I'm just gonna go back and drinking coffee. And you know what? That's exactly what the big boys want. America screwed these people. And America's credibility is finished for this generation. But you know what, it doesn't matter. Because you have Secretary of Defense flying into Bahrain and giving the green light to send the troops in from East Saudi Arabia to oppress these brave people in Bahrain who said enough is enough. All right, see, there you go. That's, that's, that's democracy right there. That's a vote. All right, thank you okay. very much. Um, I understand some of you as well. The, um, uh, I think we have provided you with some diversity of opinion, um, and we will uh, stay for another, uh, well, until uh, 1.30 and entertain some questions. If this is anything like last time, I expect there will be more questions uh, than we can answer, so I'll try as best I can to at least distribute them around the room. So, uh, questions to any of the panelists? Yes, ma'am.
years to come, what is happening right now are actually people from the outside creating reality. I mean, uh, these are really situations that are really hard to predict. Uh, it, 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 it really could go a variety of different directions. So, it, yeah, it, I guess that's just the reality of, of, of these types of situations. Sir? Um, this, you know, in, in terms of, of, of the regional world, um, it, it seems that Israel has been largely silent on the issue, but you know, at least what you're reading out of their newspapers is that there's, you know, a potential existential threat from you know from the idea of of Islamist uh, regimes taking over. Are they are they participating and are are they aiding the autocrats? Are they, you know, I, I mean, what involvement? How are they involving themselves in this? Because I can't think that they're sitting idly by. Just waiting for the cards to fall. I think there's a split, in, certainly in American opinion among those who, who are primarily concerned about Israeli security, about whether this is good or not. And that's and, and you have people like Wolfowitz coming out and talking about positive aspects of these revolutions. And not, so I, I think that the fact that there's a split of opinion sort of minimizes the degree to which there's any particular, uh, you know, strong. There's no monolithic. There's no monolith in terms of the uh, either inside or Israel or among uh, people in the U.S. about whether or not this is good or bad. There's a lot of fear, but the colonization continues in the West Bank. The bombing of Gaza continues. So also, I think that uh, uh, we generally underestimate. Uh, I think the only thing that scares the Israelis is that if you have truly democratically elected governments in the region. Uh, they are likely to take a harder line against Israel when they're dictated. Certainly any government which is democratically elected in Egypt is not going to collaborate with Israel and Gaza, like Hosni Mubarak's regime did. So, you know, it's those kind of issues. And uh, in my opinion, uh, I'm very cynical about the alleged peace process, uh, that if, uh, if that was, is ever going to happen, uh, a nice kick in the backside which a real overthrow of these dictatorships will bring might not be so bad. Uh, two things. One for this guy. I was wondering if Dr. Bloomy. Yes, Dr. Yeah. Bloomy. I was wondering Professor Buckley. If you could speak a little bit to the relationship conflict around the West between Houthis and Saudi Arabia. This is something that Question. And the second question was, can we really talk about liberal democracy as an a priori theory anymore? So, Mike, you want to so that's a large. I'll do that one, but I'll let you talk about the. I mean, that's general. That's in Mike's direction. Mm -hmm. That was kind of where the um, that the initial sort of fifteen minutes were going, and I want you to go. Right. I mentioned the fact that by year two thousand, uh, Saudi Arabia, which had always fears of a strong United uh, Yemen, because they really Yemen has always had this kind of bad taste in its mouth about what happens what happens within the larger world is the Saudi Arabia kind of marching around uh, claiming the authority and, and uh, the glory of, of the larger world attention. Um, and in BD they had a border dispute which led to the defeat of Saudi troops at, in quotation marks, not really Saudis, they were mercenaries from other countries. Along the, those islands, the Farsan Islands, which you can see right off the coast there of the border area, 
that kind of shook the, the foundations of not only Saudi Arabia, but of course their American allies. And this is right after unification, when uh, southern Yemeni troops, who are probably the, the best troops in the Middle East before unification, um, took over the Yemeni operation um, in, in that <coughs> So very quickly, you see KSA, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and their allies in the larger world uh, adapt to conditions on the ground, which led to this idea that we need to seal off this frontier. The frontier, which, just look at it again, it's very mountainous, uh, and lots of traffic would go back and forth. People who lived on both sides of the border didn't have to have passports back then. So they were able to bring in weapons, they were able to bring in labor, which is of course a big thing uh, for Saudi Arabia and the larger Gulf. Uh, they were able to bring in the little drug called cut, which was actually consumed in large amounts in parts of southwestern Saudi Arabia well until the formal closure of that border in 2000, the big fence and, and armed guards. With the closure of, the, of that fence, the response on both sides was, well, first of all, it was militarized, which meant the people on the, particularly on the Saudi side, who were, happened to be Ismaili, were a, 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 a minority of a minority, were physically removed from that border area because they became kind of uh, security threats. And a kind of colonization was taking place where, where others were moved in from other parts of Saudi Arabia to settle those border areas. But the locals who had made considerable amounts of money, and some of the big families, the Bin Ladens, for instance, are from this area, are uh, reacted. And they reacted with the arms that they had. The biggest arms market in the Arabian Peninsula is in, it was in Sa'adah, in this town up in the far northwest. You can see it on that. So there was plenty of weapons around. When I went there in 93, you used to see anti-aircraft, uh, you know, those, those anti-aircraft guns in people's backyards. I didn't have the money to buy one. I would have taken one back with me to, to New York, but <laughs> the point is that when you, when you intervene at this level and screw with people's lives like this, sometimes there's a reaction. And the reaction here kind of went out of control because the way the international community, meaning the Americans, Saudis, and their allies reacted was, all oh, these people are dangerous. These people are potentially, you know, destabilizing tactics, and they actually started using excessive force, no longer playing the game of politics, which the regime in Sanaa until then was actually very good at, kind of bringing people in and, and kind of uh, playing, you know, the kind of the big umbrella kind of uh, operations in, in Yemeni politics. What has happened since then, however, is the opposite. The emphasis on, oh, these are, there's instability there, I need more military uh, personnel, I need more military equipment, I need more direct aid. Uh, and Saw has positioned himself, even though these are his own people, I mean, he's from the, the kind of larger area up there, he's played into the hands of this larger apparatus, which has also been very profitable for a lot of players. But people don't give up. And by 2004, a very charismatic uh, religious political leader in Sana'a Kuti, and then subsequently his sons, tried, tried to embrace all of these kind of disparate groups, which were mostly villages and clusters of villages resisting on their own against what was happening to their, to their livelihoods. And he was able to, to a, to a certain extent, get all these guys to pull the resources and, and funnel a, a resistance collectively. And this is what we call the Houthi Rebellion. It has subsequently gone on and off in terms of signing temporary peace treaties, or not ceasefires, but the principle now involved in the kind of rebellion against the Saudi regime, the Ali Musin general, is the guy who is responsible for basically cleansing 300, 350,000 people who are now refugees 
in the slums of Sana'a, in Ta'iz, in Hudaydah. This is the same people who are in the streets now, protesting for the Salah regime. Now I ask you, is the guy who threw you out of your own of your homeland and killed your father or something, or killed your son, are you going to retard that guy? I, I'll, I'll tackle the, uh, the, the, the question about liberal democracy and whether or not I, I think it's a, uh, something worth pursuing. And absolutely. Now, of course, this is a question, of, a normative question, right? It, it's not a question of, uh, I mean, it's a question of, of my view on the world versus someone else's sure. view on the world. But let me defend my view on the world, which is that the world democracy is better than its absence. It, uh, I mean, if we. I think it's which is market penetration and debt at this point. I'm fine with free market capitalism. It makes I'm just people curious. better off. I'm not, I'm not making I mean, one claim or the other. I'm just getting, defining the term is kind of what I'm more concerned yeah, but, about. But I guess I would just emphasize that what it means is, is that the, the people who rule are people who are elected by a majority of citizens. Of so they have some, but I mean, that, that, that matters. The difference between Mubarak and some ruler of Egypt who's elected, uh, it is a better thing to have an elected ruler. I, 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 I really do think that. And I, and I guess as a, as a wider point, I mean, we can imagine a world in which there are free elections and no involvement of corporate money and all of the, the things which mar democracy and mar elections in even the, uh, the, the best government of countries, right? Sure. And we can say we want a world in which none of that happens and, and in which uh, you know, their true justice prevails, right? And if you keep looking at that, then everything else just sort of fades into gray and it's hard to tell distinctions between, say, in Egypt, uh, you know, when Mubarak was ruling and in Egypt after Mubarak is gone and there is the prospect of, of, of elections. But I, I, I just, as a personal preference, I prefer to, 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 to look at the world as it is and try to discern between uh, uh, things which are uh, really bad and not quite so really bad. But there, there are other ways to conceptualize it. I mean, we intervene uh, on behalf of this neoliberal model, right? I mean, mm -hmm. clearly, and this is what we want to propagate. Mm -hmm. And I 